When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's Liverpool's Fab Four. And welcome to episode 5 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there have also been some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. I've once again switched to personnel this week but as always, Carl is leading the line from the front. So Carl, how have things been with you since we last spoke? Yeah, really good things, Dan. Um, you know, obviously Sunday kind of worked out for us. You know, it could have been a lot worse and, and a proper action-packed weekend of Premier League football to discuss. So, looking forward to this, mate. Cheers, mate. And also, after such an impressive debut offering a fortnight ago, I've called Drew Pells back into the first team. So, Drew, it's a pleasure to have you on board once again. I hope you're looking forward to chatting all things football with me this afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Dak, uh, having me back, Dan. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the Premier League and everything regarding the uh, world of football. Excellent. So before we do that, I'll do some social media bits first. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. And also the podcast has its own account, that, which is at RealFootballPod. So follow that. You know, any sort of questions, comments, by all means, get involved. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And also, if you like it, please leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things on Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. Well, the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. What is Loserpool? I hear you ask. It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing, one which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. Now, if this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. The odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. Where should we go first? Let's go to Merseyside and the fact that Liverpool go into the international break at the top of the table with a perfect four wins from four. And Cole, you'd have to say it was a pretty routine win for Jurgen Klopp's men at Turf Moor on Saturday. Yeah, um, you know, you kind of fancied Liverpool going into this one. Um, I didn't think, you know, Burnley would have enough to cause them any problems. Um, and that's the way it kind of panned out, didn't it? And and the only thing you really come away from that game learning is that, you know, Liverpool have got a couple of players who sometimes are not too happy with one another. Um, and on another day, the scoreline could have been a lot heavier for Burnley. And, you know, as, as Dyke said after the game, you know, you can't really give a team like Liverpool the sort of chances that Burnley 
did um, because they will punish you. But as you say, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think we've learned too much more about Liverpool than we didn't already know, other than the fact that those, those front three that they've got um, can tear you know most teams apart. And, and if you give them the kind of chances Burnley did, then they'll punish you. But a great win, great way to go into the international break for Liverpool. Uh, and they're looking quite strong, aren't they? Absolutely. And to be honest, Drew, there wasn't really a great amount of talking points from the game, obviously, like... We sort of just said it's pretty routine. However, the most noteworthy incident was probably the substitution of Sadio Mane. So what did you make of his reaction? And also, when Mo Salah was perhaps guilty of holding on possession too much, I think you could almost point to maybe two instances of this. Is that going to be a bit of an issue throughout the season? Because these are two players that both, I guess, shared the golden boot last season, both gunning for goals. They can't both score at the same time. So how do you sort of solve this issue that is perhaps bubbling under the scene? Yeah, well... It's definitely a tough one. You know, initially, I didn't read much into it. I thought, you know, Mane is, is now a world-class forward. World class forward. He's competitive. He wants to score and all of that. So I didn't read much into it. But listening to uh, NBC Sports, which is the broadcaster of the Premier League over here in the States, one of the pundits, Robbie Musto, he made an interesting observation. He was trying to read lips, and he said he thinks it looked as if Sadio Mane said something to the effect of, this happens every game. This happens all the time. And so hearing that and assuming for a moment that it's true, I think this problem could actually get much bigger in that if Sadio Mane feels essentially disrespected, if he feels that Mo Salah is the golden boy who never gets you know, any reprimanding is too selfish, then I could see him wanting to leave next summer because you saw – the reports last year and, and a little bit throughout the summer about Real Madrid and, and, and different clubs wanting to buy him. So if he does feel that aggrieved, I think this problem could get a lot bigger beneath the surface. Now, on the pitch, I think it'll be fine because those three up front, Salah, Mane, and Firmino, are phenomenal. And so I think it's not going to affect them too much there, but I could see it spilling over into the summertime next year. I know it's a little bit uh, a ways away. But him wanting to move, and I think that's the biggest thing that Liverpool has to worry about because how do you replace him? Can you go find another wide forward who's going to integrate as well as Mane does in that front three? So I think that's the big issue that Liverpool has to worry about. Carl, this reaction, I guess, yes, it's a concern, but at the same time, is it, I guess, I don't know if commendable is the right word, but when you've got two players that are itching to score goals, can this be fostered into a positive because they're sort of willing to you know, do whatever it takes to hit the back of the net? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, as you said, Dan, if, if you looked at the game against Burnley, then Salah has probably two guilt-edged chances where he can lay Firmino in and then obviously lay Mane in. Um, he's obviously wants to get on the score sheet himself because he hasn't. Um, and, and sometimes you need to kind of be a little bit unselfish and, and put the team first. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't punish Liverpool this week because they were winning comfortably. But I do think it is something that maybe, you know, Klopp might just pull Salah slightly um, after that game and just sort of say, look, you know, I admire the fact that you want to score goals and you want strikers to be selfish. You know, if you're a striker and you're not selfish by nature, then you probably won't make a good striker because we all know if you ask the great strikers over the years, like, you know, Alan Shearer, Ian Rush, people like that, Gary Lineker, they would turn around and say to you, I'm shooting whenever I get a chance to shoot because I want the goals. But 
you know, if you look at someone like Aguero sometimes at City, you know, City and Klopp, they really have that philosophy that if there's someone in a better position than you, you square it, we score the goal and then we, we start again. And, you know, over the course of the season, you'll get the goals you need if, if you're in the side. Um, and I just think maybe Klopp might, you know, could just be worth pulling, you know, Salah slightly to one side in training, just saying, look, do me a favour, you know. I admire the fact you want to score, but sometimes you've got to lay people in and just give it. Because I think the BBC pulled up a good stat on Match of the Day too, didn't they? Where, you know, Mane has set up Salah double the amount of times that Salah has set Mane up. So, you know, it could be a slight little, you know, issue bubbling under the surface. But again... When you're winning, these issues are not as big as they could be, you know. And I think if Liverpool are picking up titles and, and winning trophies, then, you know, you, as a player, you probably put up with, you know, things that are not always great because you're picking up the trophies and that. So um, maybe just a slight word, you know, listen, start laying it off a little bit more. And, and I don't see there being a massive problem going forward. And Joe, perhaps the unsung hero of Liverpool's front three is Roberto Firmino. His strike put the icing on the cake on Saturday, and it's also brought up 50 Premier League goals for the Brazilian. So in your opinion, Drew, what does he actually offer Liverpool, and do you think he actually gets the credit he deserves? You know, it was so strange to see that he's the first Brazilian to notch 50, because you would just think throughout history, I I know the Premier League is still young, but throughout history you have all of these great Brazilian forwards, and to think no one has ever hit 50 in the Premier League was odd to me. Um, But no, I think he does get overshadowed because he isn't a typical number nine, right? He's more of that nine and a half that drifts back and helps create. He's not really a false nine, but he is very unique in the way that he plays. And because of that, he is able to then set up Salah and Mane so much. So I think his goal scoring record does kind of fly under the radar a bit. I wouldn't say that he has missed out on the attention that he deserves or anything like that. Because I think a lot of people do recognize his role and that he plays it very, very well. And you've seen when he sits out, whether it was through injury or or just having uh, a rest, Liverpool are completely different up front. And, you know, when they push Salah as a straight number nine in the middle, it's just a, a completely different way that they play. And so I think Firmino gets the recognition he deserves because people see the role that he plays and that he is almost in that team, you know, uh, irreplaceable, essentially. And so I think people uh, understand and do give him the plaudits that he deserves. Of course, Liverpool, two points clear of Manchester City going into this international break. And the defending champions made incredibly light work of Brighton. Again, Cole, we don't learn anything from that kind of result. That said, Graham Potter's best laid plans were sort of, what, dead by 90 seconds, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, you know, you go into a game and you have all that build-up, don't you? And then all of a sudden, after 90 seconds, it all goes out the window um, and you get caught. I guess the only thing here, isn't it, it is what, you know, we class that as a free hit, don't we, for a team like Brighton. You know, they're not going there really with any real realistic chance of of taking Man City on. Um, and, And the only thing you could try and say is, well, they've still tried to play football. I think we said it earlier in the season against about Norwich at Liverpool, didn't we? You know, as much as it's all very, you know, you can praise um, Brighton for what they did, you know, stick to their beliefs and everything. There will be a time where you don't want to get opened up as much as that against the top sides because you never know that goal difference could come into it throughout the season. But, you know, I don't think Brighton will be affected by that result too much. They've had a decent start. 
Um, and, and yeah, you know, most teams unfortunately are going to come up against that if City. And when you've got players like De Bruyne and Silva and Aguero in that sort of form, then there's not many teams in the country can live with them. Um, but as you say, nothing really new. You know, we haven't learned anything new about City. Um, they're great going forward. They, you know, they're, they're their squad all round is brilliant. The quality they've got in an attacking sense, um, and yeah, you know it, it's going to be between them and Liverpool, isn't it? They're so those two are so far ahead of the rest um, that it, it's now just a gunfight between the pair of them. Although Drew, it wasn't the perfect win for Manchester City, was it? Because they lost Imrik Laporte to injury. So Pep has gone on record and said that City couldn't afford to buy a defender this summer. Now. Whether we're meant to pity them, I don't know. I think they're sort of trying to get a little bit of sympathy, I sort of jest slightly. But in all seriousness, how much of a blow is the absence of Laporte going to be over these next few weeks, maybe even months? Yeah, first of all, no pity whatsoever yeah, exactly. for Manchester yeah. City. <laughs> I'm not crying any tears whatsoever. <laughs> they, they have the money, they just chose not to spend it. Uh, but I, di- I digress. Um, I, I think, actually, this is a really significant blow, and this is why. First, of course, they only have one fit center back in Otamendi. But the biggest problem is whoever they're going to switch around, whether Fernandinho continues to play in central defense like he did uh, coming on as a substitute, if they're going to move Kyle Walker, if they're going to do a back three and Kyle Walker plays on the right side of center back, which he did with England in the World Cup, whatever it is that they're going to do, they don't have a lot of training time to work out all the kinks because once the international break ends, they're playing every three days for the next month. Now, granted, they do have not exactly the stiffest of competition, Norwich, Shakhtar, Preston in the League Cup. So that will help them a bit. But I think the lack of training time in adjusting around the defense is going to hamper them quite a bit. So I think this is a big blow because Laporte's injury, it looks pretty serious. It's not like he's coming back in just a few weeks. And so, and John Stones, right, he's still injured, but he hasn't worked out at City the way Pep imagined when they bought him. So I think this is a a really significant hit to City. Again, though, they kind of are getting it at a good time, kind of, because of the upcoming opposition. Um, But this is going to hurt them quite a bit, I think. So, Cole, obviously there's, what, 34 league matches still to go, still very, very early, and the bookmakers still have City top and favourites to win the title. However, you know, it's only going to take a couple more drop points with a Laporte injury for those scales to tip back in Liverpool's favour. Yeah, I say, you know, this now is a real, you know, it's a small headache for them, isn't it? Because we know as well as anyone, you know, if City feel they've got a problem come January, they'll just go out and splash 50, 60 million on a centre-half and they'll kind of um, solve that problem for a little while, won't they? Um the only good thing for City, you know, as we've said, is that their opposition coming up, I kind of think even if they drop Fernandinho in there or Carl Walker, they'll get away with it. You know, going forward, they're so good that they're the sort of side that can get away with, you know, having a player out of position every now and then. Um, but, they, you know, as you say, injuries, you know, injuries to real key players like that could cause you problems as the season goes on. It's the same for Liverpool, isn't it? You know, are, are they just a Van Dyke injury away from being in real trouble? Because, as we know, you know, when you've got people like 
Lovren are then coming in, you don't feel as confident if you had Lovren and someone else at the back. Whereas, you know, once you know you've got Van Dyke there, you feel kind of solid. Um, so both teams will probably be aware that, you know, they could just be one or two real injuries away from kind of suffering a little bit. But um, at the moment, the way both of them are looking is that they're going to end up blowing most teams out of the water, I think, this year. Um, and, and obviously now... I, I, for me personally, I feel we've got a few, you know, little mini leagues going on. You know, you've got those two top two who are going to battle each other. You've then got positions below that for sort of four or five teams fighting for third on down to fourth. Um, and then the, this team's chasing for fifth down to about seventh and then the rest after that. So it, it could be a real interesting season, but I just feel that the title is, is only going into one or two places this year. Also, Drew, when you look at Liverpool's Premier League record, they've lost one game in the last 43, and I believe it's 13 straight wins. I think they're also something, I think it's something like they've not lost at home in over two seasons. It's an absolutely outstanding set of stats. It seems as if this Liverpool side is evolving, and more importantly, improving in front of our very eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I think their clean sheet uh, this past weekend was huge for them because they hadn't kept one all year. And so I think getting that confidence... Uh, right now was really important for them. And you see, like you said, they've been absolutely phenomenal recently, 13 straight in the Premier League, and then their home record over the past couple seasons has been phenomenal. So I think, yeah, they're getting better right now. And with that injury to Laporte and City, not only are they chasing, but should they drop points? Because it looks like Liverpool is not going to be doing that. City are only getting farther and farther behind, which just puts the pressure on them more and more. So I think Liverpool right now have to look like favorites for the Premier League. Now, with that being said, last year in, I want to say it was January plus or minus, they were also leading the league and then they started to collapse with a lot of draws. So does that pressure get to them again as well? Who knows? But I think right now at this moment, Liverpool look like a much more stable side, a much more uh, positive looking side going forward. And if I was betting on it at this moment Liverpool would have to be the favorite for the Premier League title here's a question for you both actually so Carl I'll ask you first do you actually enjoy watching Man City play and I mean it in the sense that when they roll over teams like Brighton does that offer enough entertainment for you because it is so one-sided you know it's almost akin to when Pep was manager of Barcelona and Messi and Coma sort of winning sixes and sevens every week and you think yeah it's a great spectacle great players doing great things but from the sort of two teams going to war as a contest, it's non-existent. So are you happy just to watch good players do great things or do you actually feel there's a need to actually have competitive fixtures when you're watching football? I think the wonderful thing we've got in the Premier League does offer that up. But I, I guess it's that kind of thing, isn't it? You know, when the likes of Brighton and teams like that go away to someone like Anfield or Man City, we do often find that these contests are kind of one-sided, one way. You know, one team just sits back, hopes not to try and concede more than two, and one team just wants to attack. Um, but you still have to say at the end of the day, if you're a football fan, then when you're watching the kind of passing and the movement and, and it's, it's, you know, it's the way it's done, isn't it? You know, when you're watching De Bruyne and he's fizzing balls into people's feet and there's runs and people, you know, making brilliant runs and the pass is directly into their path, you know, and if it was slightly more behind them. So on a technical side of things, you have to admire the football that's being played, no matter what the kind of game is, you know, because that's us 
face it, Brighton are not a team of Sunday league footballers. So the fact that Man City are tearing them apart does just show you how good those footballers are. But I do kind of get what you're saying. You know, is there that element where you think, well, actually, what what's the point? You know, what what are we learning from this? And as you say, where is the kind of enjoyment um, after a while? Because if everyone turns up and you just smash them four or five nil every week, although it's great, you do you probably would still get bored of that after a little while because you want to see an exciting game. Um, but the football one shows really good. I guess this leads to a question at some point, Dan, doesn't it, with these teams about what you know this fabled you know European Super League where all the top sides you know break away and form a league where every week you haven't got these Man City v Brighton fixtures and you've got Man City versus Barcelona, Man City v Real Madrid, um, which some people probably love the idea of that. Whereas if you're a traditionalist, you want you want to see that you know the league as it is now. Um, it's an interesting question. I think you can enjoy it, but then there is also an element of like, mm, actually, this is so one-sided. What is the point? Drew, and the same question to you. If there's another slant or you want anything to add to that, please feel free. Yeah, you know, I echo a lot of what Carl said in that watching City especially, but City and Liverpool, yeah, you not, have to it's admire. Not, it's not a dig at City. It's just, I guess, that's the example. But you could quite easily just change that for Liverpool. But please continue. Yeah, exactly. I think you have to admire kind of the beauty in which both sides play. Uh, you know, the example of De Bruyne fizzing in crosses or, or, you know, pick out whichever player you want. I think that is a spectacle that, that a lot of people enjoy, especially me. Now, yeah, seeing lopsided, you know, four nils, three nils, sometimes it can get a bit boring. But don't forget, these are Premier League teams and on certain days they can compete. Like, I think it was last year, I want to say it was Newcastle and Palace beat City back to back. I believe it was. Um, and so you do have those teams. They are able to compete on their day, right? Just uh, recently, right, Newcastle won at Tottenham. Now, I'm not putting Tottenham in the same category as Liverpool and, and Man City, but, you know, these teams can get it done at certain times. And so I think there still is a lot of value. There still is a lot of entertainment. And there still is um, a lot of fun to to watch these teams. If you're a fan of Man City or not, or Liverpool or not, I think it's still even – still fun for a neutral and so i enjoy watching them uh play whether it's against a team like brighton or if they're going to take on each other or whatever it happens to be okay that's a very good uh, viewpoint just one sort of wider question in terms of sergio Aguero, who scored a brace at the weekend carl i think i've asked you before so i'll ask drew this question and i'll ask you a sort of sub question in a minute so drew can you see sergio Aguero becoming the record premier league goal scorer i think he's 90 goals away from alan shearer He's at age 31, though. I mean, he could do it in theory, but do you think he'll run out of years or legs in order to get to that hallowed goal tally? You know, there are a lot of those things to consider is, will he play long enough in the Premier League? I think an even bigger question, though, is how long does Manchester City keep Gabriel Jesus or do they go and find someone else? Because that was why they brought him in, right? They kind of wanted him to take the reins from Aguero and become the number nine, and Aguero would be more of, of a super sub. That hasn't happened, and he's kept his place. He's deserved it, absolutely. So I kind of wonder, is, yeah, he's getting on in age, but if they stick with Gabriel Jesus, then Aguero probably continues to start and has a much better chance of getting there. Granted, 90 goals, I mean, you're looking at four, maybe five seasons, so is he really going to be kicking on at, you know, 34, 35? 
that's the toughest question. But again, I think it comes down to if City are going to go and get another center forward to try and phase Aguero out. If they don't, then absolutely, I think he has a shot to get there. Because even now, he continues to impress. He continues to score um, against good and bad teams. So I definitely think he can get there. And Cole, Harry Kane, I think he's too short of the halfway mark of Alan Shearer. So I believe he's on 128 and he needs to get to 260. So yeah, just short of uh, 50% at the moment. So this is a big if, and this is, I guess, a crystal ball-based question. But if Kane stayed at Tottenham long-term, surely that's his record to earn. Yeah, that's a, it's a real interesting one, isn't it? I, and I think the answer there is if Kane's at Spurs long enough, because I, I don't see Kane going to another Premier League side, if I'm honest. You know, the way he kind of has made himself to, uh, as a Tottenham man, I, I've, I find it difficult to believe that when Kane does leave, he, he goes to you know another side in the UK. Um, for me, I think he goes to Real Madrid at some point. Um, and, and to be honest, we know, don't we, Dan, you know, from chats we've had, I think it all depends on what kind of, you know, if Spurs are winning anything in the next couple of seasons. Because for me, if there's no trophies come this season or at least next season, then I see Kane reaching a point where he turns around and says, well, listen, I've given it my all year. I've done everything I can, but I don't see this side actually winning something. Um, and you know, we all know if, if Harry Kane's for sale, there isn't a top team in Europe who doesn't want him. Um, and Real Madrid and possibly even Barcelona will be two sides that will be gunning for his signature. Um, if he was to stay in the Premier League, then, you know, you could see that he is the one, I think, realistically, who gets that record. Um, because, as Drew rightly said, you know, you're looking at Aguero possibly having to try and get 30 goals in a season. So you're looking at four or so seasons more. I don't see City sticking with Aguero for that long, well, you know, especially when his age is going to go against him. Um, so Kane, if he stays, I think could get that record definitely. My fear would, though, that Kane won't be probably here long enough to get that record because he'll have moved on and moved to somewhere like Madrid by the time he's you know close enough to that. Right, well, talking about Harry Kane brings me nicely onto the North London derby. And, Drew, there's no doubting the entertainment value that we all witnessed on Sunday, although for me and Cole, it was a little bit too tense at times. So, Drew, what did you make of Tottenham's offering and how much will they be kicking themselves at conceding that goal just before the interval? Oh, absolutely. That was a huge turning point in the game because that completely changes the team talk at halftime and how they're going to come out tactically in any changes for the second half. So that was absolutely huge. Yeah, Spurs should be kicking themselves as much as possible. I mean, they should get the biggest, baddest horse they can to buck each and every player because not only did they give up that goal, but then they gave up a second one. They were up 2-0 pretty early on in the game and then ending up dropping points so i think this is a huge blow to their confidence and this i think if they had won this game whether it was maintaining the lead or getting a late goal i think that would have been great for their confidence but dropping points here after being ahead having lost to newcastle i think this team is just getting lower and lower and lower on confidence each and every week and you know going into the game a lot of the talk was the team is unsettled, Christian Eriksen, Jan Vertonghen, or you know, take your pick of whoever they wanted to blame. Honestly, I think Pochettino has a lot of blame in this because for the entire season, he's been complaining about the transfers, the Eriksen situation, or, or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, cliche aside, it's kind of true, 
fish rot, rots from the head. And, you know, who's the captain of this ship? Pochettino. And so I think a lot of the, you know, the, the bad vibes coming around Spurs are coming from Pochettino, unfortunately. So I think Spurs have a lot of questions to, to solve over the international break. And, you know, for their sake, hopefully they come back kind of minds refreshed and ready to, uh, to kick on. Carl, anything to, uh, to counterbalance that point? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, I kind of feel a little bit differently in the sense that, uh, you know, for me, as, as much as there was a blow of kind of draw in that game, I think it's the first time from an attacking sense that we've kind of seen Spurs um, get back to or, or look like they were getting back to, you know, the kind of a counter-attacking with pace and opening the team up. Um, then we have, you know, that that's the best kind of attacking performance we've put in for a little while. And I kind of feel that, you know, the international break may have come around at a wrong time for us because if we were then playing our next game at home now, you know, this weekend, I'd kind of feel we might be able to start getting back in the groove, especially now the um, transfer window in Europe is shut and everyone now knows where they stand. So it's, you've just got to get on with it and crack down now. Um, so I kind of I kind of feel slightly differently. I sort of think it's a disappointing draw having been two up. But it's a game we'd have come out of possibly thinking, you know, neither me or you, Dan, were looking forward going into that game because we kind of felt that we could be on the wrong end of a result. And I just kind of feel the attacking performance has given us lifted us a little bit in that we sort of feel, well, actually, we might be about to get back into our best now. Um, so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see where we go. You know, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm right and Drew's wrong, but. You know, some people will agree with Drew. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, well, if I could real quick. Yeah, you sure. know, I, I, I think that's a good point uh, in terms of attack in the first half. I think it was Spurs had eight shots, seven on target, which is phenomenally lethal. So, yeah, I definitely think that's great. And, you know, Hyungman Son was great on the day, even though he didn't get a goal. Right, I think he was taken down in the box by Shaka for the penalty. Um, so, you know, the stats don't reflect it, but he was very good on the day. But again, I think for how good they were in the first half and in the second half, Arsenal was able to kind of reverse that and take control of the game. I think that's where, um, that, that confidence going down, uh, uh, is going to come into play because yeah, they were great in the first half, but then the second half they fell off. Cole, Unai Emery, he's obviously changed the defensive personnel, not all sort of in the team at the moment, Kieran Tierney's still injured. So it seems that for all their attacking endeavour, which is certainly on display on Sunday, those defensive woes do have the potential to unrail their season, don't they? Yes, yeah, it's, it's hard to believe, isn't it, Dan? You know, I was having this chat with someone the other day and you're sitting there thinking, you know, we're, we're just kind of layman football fans who, you know, we kind of feel we know a little bit about it. But, you know, these clubs have got all these so-called football experts and everything. It's hard to believe that no one at that club has turned around and said, listen, if we can just get some defenders and sensible defenders, we've got a real chance of doing something at this club because... From an attacking point of view, we've never got nothing to worry about. We play good attacking football. We've got a great couple of forwards there that will always cause teams problems. But Arsenal just seem to want to go and buy these kamikaze defenders who just go around like headless chickens. And when you're bringing in David Luiz in the hope that he might calm you down, as we you know as we've seen over the last couple of games, I just he just hasn't settled anyone down at all. You know, defensively they are a mess. Um, and 
it's been the same for the last four or five seasons, isn't it? You know, where you're just thinking, yes, they're going to be great going forward. They'll score goals and, and they'll win some good games. You know, they'll win some good games of football. But more often than not, they're going to get caught out by defenders doing stupid things, goalkeepers making mistakes, tackles where they don't need to make tackles, lunging in when you don't need to. Um, and it will be the same again this season for Arsenal, I fear, looking at them. You know, they'll do great going forward. But ultimately, when they come up against better opposition, it'll be defensively where they get let down and they'll drop too many points because of that. Um, and I just can't believe that no one at the club has said the priority now has to be, you know, two reliable centre-halves and, and we may be in with a shout here. And Drew, Arsenal, they broke their transfer record on Nicola Pepe in the summer. We're still waiting for him to do something positive in terms of a goal or an assist. Admittedly, there's a small period of grace that he needs to sort of settle in after coming from League 1, but he's going to have to deliver soon. In fairness, he does look lively, but at the same time quite erratic. It's almost as if he's trying too hard too early. Yeah, you know, the thing that kind of shocked me was, I felt like in this game against Spurs, there were too many times where he always cut inside on his left foot. I know that's his strong foot, but you can't always do that. You have to go right sometimes towards the byline to send it across, and I felt like there were a couple times he could have or should have done that and didn't. So I'm almost wondering if, you know, playing in France before was a little bit too easy for him. And now stepping up to better defenders playing in the Premier League, the transition is going to be longer than people expected. But he does have the talent. He has the, the pace to get past people, right? We've seen it uh, a few different times through, uh, throughout the young season so far. So I think... He will get up to speed. It's going to take him a little bit longer than uh, people expected. Also, Carl, Kamikaze Defenders, great name. I love that one. I had a smile on my face when you said that a moment ago. Yeah, that was a very good reference. We, we can all sort of resonate to Arsenal and Kamikaze Defenders. I think Nicolas Pepe, I think there was a spell in the game where he must have had a shot, took a free kick and took a corner in space of about 30 seconds. He was just like, give it to me, give it to me, which is, I guess, commendable in a North London derby, but just needs to relax. And I think once he does relax those sort of goals and assists that they've paid, what, the guts of £70 million for, should start coming. Right, that's the first half done and dusted. On the other side of this very small break, we'll be back with the rest of the Premier League review, so please don't go anywhere. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early, and you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. I hope you're still locked in and ready to go as we whistle-stop tour the rest of the Premier League results and performances and such. So where should we go next? Let's go to Stamford Bridge. And one of the teams that has got top four aspirations, whether Drew thinks they will or not, he sort of said two weeks ago, whether he's changed his mood or not, I don't know. Because after earning a first win under Frank Lampard last week over Norwich, which was quite a topsy-turvy encounter, very entertaining must be said, the hope and the expectation would be to get the better of Sheffield United. Drew, it really was a tale of two halves. Where did it all go wrong in the second? Halftime. That's where it started. Once again, Frank Lampard has been the second best manager of only two managers in every match. 
and Sheffield United came out firing. That first goal, which was, I want to say, in the first or second minute of the second half, absolutely changed the entire dynamic. And I think Chelsea's defense really then was like, oh, no, here we go again, and lost any bit of confidence that they had. So Chelsea, you know, their defense has been a huge Achilles heel so far. Cesar Espiliqueta has been slow. He hasn't tracked runners. He's been behind the play almost every single time. And for someone who's been so reliable for the team captain to be kind of the, you know, the negative leader in terms of of play so far this year is really disappointing to see. So it all went wrong at halftime. And then beyond that, like you said, tale of two halves, Sheffield United were way better in the second half and deservedly came back. Chelsea have no one to blame but themselves. You know, Frank Lampard had Kurt Zuma in there. I know Rudiger is still hurt. I get it. But there's no way he continues to play when Rudiger comes back. And then I think Lampard took a bit of a gamble and it backfired in that, oh, this is Sheffield United. We can play Tamore in the back with Zuma, not with Christensen. So I think that was a, a mistake that Lampard made as well. Now, obviously, hindsight is is twenty twenty, and it's easy to say now. Um, but I think you see Lampard's inexperience. He's made different decisions like that that have kind of backfired and hurt the team. And so, as you alluded to, no, I'm still not confident that Chelsea will finish top four this year. Because, Cole, in that second half, Sheffield United were getting so much joy down the left-hand side. Both goals coming from that flank. Um, obviously, the second one was Kurtzuma putting through his own net. But it's just, in that second 45, they just stopped showing Chelsea respect, didn't they? Because in the first half, they were just, you know, giving Jorginho as much time as he wanted. And they were standing off him. Second half, they were just in at them. And it's just, like I said, just a completely different performance. Yeah, I think there are times, aren't there, where some of these sides maybe get a little bit overawed and and let the occasion and who they're playing against get to them. And suddenly, you know, you kind of can see a team, you know, you're just actually admiring too much of what's around you. And then all of a sudden, you know, something can happen that sparks sparks something in you where you go, actually, why are we scared of these? Um, And I think that happened in that game. You know, Chelsea came out and it's been something that's been, you know, thrown at Lampard from his derby days, isn't it, that actually come half time he can't get them going again in the second half you know his game management at that point then is is kind of questionable and Sheffield United come out got that early sniff and then as you say I actually think you know something in your mind says why we don't actually need to be scared of these you know it's a little bit like with Man United wasn't it in their heyday suddenly you're scared of them you're already beaten in the tunnel because you just feel you're going out to just to get a beating when all of a sudden Fergie leaves and then actually that, you know, that feeling rubs off and teams start actually then going there saying, what is there to be scared of here, actually? There's nothing to be scared of. And it just looked like after half time, Sheffield United kind of had a bit of a wake up, realised, listen, we can get at these and they're vulnerable. And soon as they did, then, as you say, they were just going for it at that point. And Chelsea just didn't have the answers to kind of draw it back from them and get control of the game. And, you know, that will be something that Frank is going to really need to work on and work on quickly because too many drop points like that to teams, you know, of that sort of level. And then you can kiss top four goodbye, that's for sure. Cole, I'll stay with you. Although they drew, I think it's fair to say that Tammy Abraham's confidence is skyrocketed. He only needed that one goal. That came against Norwich the week before. He's now scored four in the space of two full fixtures. So, you know, you can obviously see the the growth in stature in him already. Needs a goal, gets it. He could be a real handful now. 
Well, the only question then, you know, kind of is still there for me is that we know he could do that in the championship last season. And he's played actually in theory with no disrespect to them, but two sides from the league below um, to what were championship sides and scored his goals. So I guess there's still only question mark there, you know, left to answer now is can he do it against, you know, if you like the top six and the bigger opposition, um, you know, real Premier League class. Um he looks, you know, he's got all the ability there. There's no doubt about it. And, and he's going to get given time by Frank. So his confidence will be sky high. And I think now if he can go and get an, a goal against, you know, one of the big six or something, then I think we'll see him push on. Um, he, he's got it all. There's no doubt. You know, he could be massive. But again, it's one of them, isn't it? You know, he scored, you know, he scored some goals, but they were against teams that have come up. So that might still be, you know, niggling away at him. Um, but he does look like a serious talent. And, and if he gets a goal against the big six, I, I could see him pushing on for sure. OK, let's move back up to Merseyside now. I'll go to Goodison Park. Everton, they came out on top against Wolves in a really entertaining clash, a five-goal thriller. And Drew, it must be said that Marco Silva's men, I guess, bounced back in perfect fashion after losing to Aston Villa the week before. Yeah, you know, for Everton, I think it was really important that they got an early goal from Richarlison. And then even though they surrendered one to Wolves, they didn't let that get them down. And Iwobi came out and then scored a few minutes after that. And so I think that was really big for Marco Silva's side. I mean, look, Everton should be one of the teams that are trying to crack that top six, right? Because United is down, Chelsea's down, Arsenal's down. Everton is one of those few that can get there. And one of the others would be Wolves, even though I think the Europa League is going to hamper them quite a bit. And so with that, Everton taking on one of the other potential top six challengers and beating them and being able to to go toe-to-toe, even though they, they gave up some goals, I think was really important for them. And like you said, coming back after the loss at Aston Villa was also very, very important. So I think Everton, this can really help them uh, in the coming weeks as they continue to go through because the the transfers that they made uh, during the summertime, like I thought Fabian Delph was very good on the day, helping in uh, central midfield. And so I think this is going to be big for Everton. Can they use this to help uh, jumpstart them and continue to win games? And right, this comes off the back of, yeah, it was a League Cup game, I get it. Um, but still, in that one, they had a couple emphatic goals as well. So I think this is really good for Marco Silva and Everton. Well, Carl, Wolves, yet to win this season in the league. They have drawn three, so there's a small caveat attached to that. But are we already seeing the signs of a Europa League campaign? Because they've had to clear so many hurdles just to get to the group stage. Is that already becoming a bit of a nuisance to their season, just like it was for Burnley 12 months ago? Yeah, it'll be something that's annoying them, won't they? You know, because we, we all know Wolves are a good side and they play some really good football. And, and I don't for one minute believe Wolves will be in trouble this season. You know, they are too good for that, I feel. Um, but obviously, as you say, it will be a slight concern that they haven't managed to get a win um, so far yet this season. Uh, but I don't think there'll be panic stations setting in. They've got a good manager. They've got some good players, as you say. They may be, you know, this international break could be good for them. Um, They've had a long run up, as you say, with that Europa League qualification and where they had to start. But I don't see them encountering the same problems that Burnley had. I think they've got a little bit more about them. And, uh, you know, in all fairness, I think that first win will be just around the corner and then that will start, you know, kickstart their season again. But, you know, uh, they they will want to get it because it will be a slight concern for them. 
True, we go to Crystal Palace now, and they've recorded their second win of the season after their incredible effort over Manchester United the week before. So they've got a win over Villa. Jordan Ayew got the winner. However, that's not really the talking point from that game. It's the decision not to give Villa an equaliser in injury time, which for me was nothing short of baffling. Now, under the letter of the law, VAR couldn't switch that because the referee had blown up. You know, rightly or wrongly, we'll discuss in a minute. But surely that's exactly the remit which VAR should be sort of going, actually, this is a, a huge error. We need to be overriding that and giving the goal. Yeah, so, you know, I, I've been against VAR from the beginning, but the biggest reason everyone was such a proponent was it's going to get the call right. That's what everyone talked about. And in this instance, it did not. And as you correctly pointed out, the, it, they followed the letter of the law. And, it, and like, I'm, I'm so over and tired of hearing that, oh, well, you know, that's the way the law is written and, and whatnot. Look, yeah, VAR has been an absolute nightmare for the Premier League. It, it Every single week, it's stealing headlines from matches. And that should never be the case. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in. With that being said, because, again... The call was right in terms of following the letter of the law. Kevin Friend, the referee, needs to be reprimanded, right? Just like any job, if you perform your job and don't do it well and make huge egregious errors like this one, then you need to be punished and you need to suffer the consequences. Now, I'm not calling for Kevin Friend to get fired or something like that, but if he were to get fined, you know, one game check, if he were to not referee for a month or something like that he needs to serve some sort of punishment for this mistake and the reason i think it's such a big mistake is this cost aston villa a point a very important point because they're probably going to be in a relegation battle so number one it hurts them beyond that he was completely wrong in judging that graylish had uh dived he didn't on the replay you can clearly see there was contact moreover they, the referees have been told, don't blow the whistle early, don't raise the flag early for offside, let it play out, and he didn't do that. And I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, we got to cut him some slack, he's getting used to the new rules. No, right? There was no slack for America Laporte when the ball, against Spurs when the ball came off his hand accidentally. So if players don't get that benefit of the doubt of having to you know, give them some time to adjust, then referees shouldn't get that either. And so once again... I think this was a huge mistake on his part. He got it wrong in every aspect, and he should have to serve some sort of punishment for it. Unfortunately, the punishment usually is going referee in the championship for a week, so it'll probably be officiating Preston versus West Brom or something, and that's just that'll be it. They'll be okay. Well, you've been demoted for a week. Let's talk no more about it. But Cole, it seems to be we're in a situation where after four weeks, VAR doesn't want to seem to be overturning referees' decisions. We talk about or we hear this threshold quality threshold where you know things are only going to go to VAR and you know it's going to be a higher barometer of you know decisions and all this but at the same time VAR doesn't want to be this person who's gone actually I think you've got that wrong and sort of then um what's the word sort of make the referee's job lesser so you can look at another example Harry Kane being bundled to the ground on uh, Sunday try and be as subjective as you can but we're in this weird halfway house where we've got VAR and it's not now being used to its fullest um I guess potential 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen some incidents this weekend, haven't we? You know, if you look at you've got the Kane incident, you've got the um, Tillersman incident in the game against Bournemouth, and then you've got the West Ham one where Haller gets brought down in the penalty box. And as you say, Dan, it kind of looks as though we've got this stage where actually what we're, what's happened over this last week or so is that VAR, it's almost like VAR is being brought in and said, oh, don't override the referee, though. If he didn't give a penalty, then we'd best not give a penalty. Make it out like we're reviewing it, but we still won't give the penalty because, you know, whether it's we don't want to make the referees look bad, I don't know. But the bottom line was, this was brought in to help referees. Now, I've said it loads of times. I'm prepared to accept that referees in real time may not always get the best view of something. They may, you know, they may interpret something slightly differently. But we must be having this incidence where if VAR's going to look at these, they should at least be saying to the referee, we think you might, might have made a mistake here or you might not have seen something. We want you to go and have a look at this again on the monitor um, and then you can look and make your own mind up that we feel there's a decision here and you might have got this one wrong. But at the moment, it looks like we're seeing some obvious decisions, but actually, well, because the referee gave you know no penalty in that situation, we'll just stick with the no penalty, it's easier. And that's not what we want. You know, We need to have conviction that this works. And if you're going to re-look at incidents like the Tillersman one, how you can judge that that isn't a red card offence where he goes right over the ball, straight into someone's ankle and not say, listen, you've given that as nothing, that's a stamp there or that's a bad tackle, studs up, that's a red card, you need to issue a card. The referees need to be prepared to accept that they may get something wrong and no one's going to attack them for that. You know, we're going to get the ump if we're seeing obvious decisions that should be and still get overturned because the whole idea we're buying into this concept that we understand a human can make a mistake. But when we then get the chance to have a video evidence and we can clearly see something, it should be dealt with. And that's not what's happening, you know, especially this weekend. It's like if we use a cricket example, Let's say that cricket, they used the technology and it was clearly out and they just oh, went, actually, no, let's not give the wicket. You'd be up in arms, wouldn't you, Carl? You'd be like, actually, what the hell is going on? So it's like... Yeah, that, that's right. There's no point having this technology if you're not going to use it and actually benefit from it. And the benefit was, you know, everyone had said referees can't keep up with the modern game and the fast pace it's moving at. And they only get one view and it's done within two seconds. You know, click of a finger. Oh, oh, I don't know. Did he take him there? I'm not sure. We've got the technology now to help us. Let's stop it. Let's review it. Yes, he catches him. No, he doesn't. You know, yes, you might not have seen it, referee, but at least go and have a look at it. We're not even using the ability where the refs are getting asked to go and look at the incident again. Um, And for me, I would like to see VAR use where the referee always has to go and have a look at something on the monitor, you know, for these incidents. Because right now, no one is actually getting pulled up for, well, why didn't you give this? You know, it's almost like these incidents are happening. These, if you like, misjustices are happening. And yet no one is actually to blame for it. And what we want to know is if you get a referee who keeps reviewing incidents and not giving a decision or a penalty or a red card, then we obviously know he needs training because he's not picking up on certain things that he should do. Whereas right now we're getting obvious red cards, obvious penalties being missed. And actually, at the end of the day, no one's kind of not being punished, but... No one's, you know, held account for those incidences and why those, you know, penalties or goals or red cards weren't given. 
that's exactly it. It's accountability, and there's a huge lack of it at the moment. Anyway, let's move on. Let's wrap up the rest of the uh, the league action. So, Drew, Manchester United, they've not won in the league since the opening weekend. It's fair to say it was a rather uninspiring performance against Southampton on Saturday lunchtime. Yeah, you know, the craziest thing is Manchester United now, they are simply an average squad, right? If you look at an elite team, Liverpool does not go to Southampton and lose or draw, especially when having the lead. And in addition to that, being a man up for 15, 18 minutes, Liverpool doesn't drop points there. Manchester City doesn't drop points there. But who does? A mid-table average side. And that's exactly what Manchester United are. There's not one person in that squad who can wear the badge honorably in the way of, this is Man United. There's not one player in that squad that has proved it this year. Well, Cole, if Manchester United drop out of the top six, that you know could happen. It looks as if Leicester might be more than ready to take their place. And it seems as if the Foxes have got the old Jamie Vardy back. Yeah, that I mean, you know, Jamie Vardy's first goal was was, was a brilliant finish, wasn't it? You know, it's that it's that same old one ball over the top, use his pace, and then you know, credit to him because that was a real class finish for the first one. Um, and his second was just a predatory. You know, he's in and around that box and he's ready. Um, Leicester looked really good this season, and I think they could be a side who could really kind of you know take advantage of United or say Chelsea slipping up as often as they do because I really think they've got the bit between their teeth they've got a good squad um, there's some good players there they've got a hungry manager who's keen to prove himself and I, and I think you know Leicester will will upset a lot of teams this season and if Jamie Vardy's kind of in that sort of form then that is a front man that, that can send fear through defenders um, so they're looking really promising and really good at the moment Leicester. Drew West Ham they've got the better of Norwich Sebastian Haller is looking like a bit of a player for the Hammers. Dare I say he's the sort of the forward attention, the attacking threat that the Hammers need with, I guess, Javier Hernandez now departing. He could be a key component for the uh, the Hammers this season. Yeah, Haller has looked great in the last couple games scoring. I believe it's three goals in the past two matches. So he's been absolutely on fire. And yeah, I think he's going to be really important for them. For West Ham, I think if he drops off, then they're going to be sitting 15th or something like that. But if he continues on this pace and he scores a lot of goals, then I think West Ham have a good shot to be, uh, you know, in the top half of the table. Even in this game, they absolutely blew Norwich out of the water. They had a, a boatload of shots more, and they uh, they forced Kroll into quite a few saves, including there was a double save from, it was Haller and one more person, I don't remember who, uh, but yeah, West Ham, they look like they're getting better each and every game. So I think they have a pretty good shot of uh, doing some damage that people did not expect from them. And finally, Cole, Watford, they're off the mark. They've got a draw against Newcastle. So the, uh, the FA Cup hangover headache is sort of dissipating ever so slightly. It's a start for Javi Gratch's men, but they're going to have to find a spark sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think given the run they were on, you know, Newcastle probably was, you know, it could have been a difficult venue for them to visit. So they'll be glad just to kind of stop the rot and at least pick up a point. And again, it's all about building from now, isn't it? You know, I still think they're going to suffer not having Deeney around because I really do think he's someone that kind of drives that team on. Um so, and missing him now for a while, I think that could really hurt them. But they've got some really good players there. 
Um, I suppose the question is, are those the sort of players, you know, Delafeo, is he going to be around when it, it gets tough? Um, but a point, they'll take that, it, it stops the rot, and, and they'll hope now they can build on that in their next game. Again, for them, they probably didn't want the international break when it's come because it kind of disrupts what they've just, you know, the couple of decent results that they've got. Right, chaps, sterling work. I think we've whittled through the whole of the Premier League action from the weekend, so I think we're done. I think I just need to uh, do a little bit of admin at my end. There's no Loserpool predictions this week because it's the international break. You can still have a go to loserpool.com, create an account. You can enter this prize pool up until the start of the next game week, and then we sort of move into the next one. So you've got one more chance. Even if you are not sign up early, you can still get involved and uh, play for a chance to win £1,000. Um, I think, yeah, that's about it from my point of view. If you do want to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it these days, please, by all means, do so. Five stars. If you, do, if you don't love it, don't bother, because I don't want my five-star rating ruined. So there you go. Just I'll leave that with you. Drew, once again, an absolute sterling effort. I hope you want to uh, get involved sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again for having me on, Dan. I appreciate it. And I hope I'm doing the Yanks justice in talking about the Premier League. And, um, yeah, I would definitely love to come back after the international break uh, or whenever it happens to be. Thank you for having me on. We'll get you back on after the international break. Consider that done. And, Cole, you get a week off, mate. That's fine. I'm going to uh, do some other bits and pieces. So we don't need to talk about England versus Bulgaria next week or anything like that. So feel free to relax and I'll, I'll speak to you in a fortnight. Nice one, Danny. Uh, you know, being being as old as I am now, mate, I need to uh, put some ice on the muscles and, you know, get a week off, mate. It's good news. That's right. We've got a long season, so I don't want to fog you early, mate, or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> right then. With that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loser Paul. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.